1: Clients of ARC Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. I'm Michael Cromer, a marketing associate here at ARC. On this episode of FYI, we will again showcase our latest episode of In the Know, a monthly video series on which our CEO and CIO, Kathy Wood, discusses fiscal policy, monetary policy, Market signals, economic indicators, and innovation. You can find the full In the Know video series at our video center at arc-invest.com/videos. On today's episode, in particular, Kathy also weighs in on the Inflation Reduction Act, productivity, inventory buildups, the latest employment report, commodities, why we're already in a recession, and more. She'll also touch on the Bitcoin month a Bitcoin earnings report of sorts. You can also find this at arc-invest.com. Please enjoy today's episode.
2: Hello, everyone. Once again, it is Employment Friday. So I'm Kathy Wood, founder and CIO of Arc Arc Invest, just giving you A rundown on monetary policy, fiscal policy, economic indicators, market indicators, a little bit about crypto at the end, some interesting developments there. I'll start first with fiscal policy this time, because I guess overnight, the Inflation Reduction Act passed. And according to academic studies, I believe Penn is one, this package probably will not Reduce inflation because growth will be slower than otherwise would have been the case, according to their models. Therefore, productivity will probably be lower than otherwise would be the case, and inflation slightly higher, not terribly higher, but not going in the right direction. From an investment point of view, I think there's a terms of trade effect here in that our corporations with more than a billion dollars in profits who were paying less than 15% corporate tax with all of their deductions and such, or perhaps because of their geographic positioning, they will have to pay a minimum of 15% now. So I think that will be to the detriment of more U.S. corporations than others in the world. So a little bit of a terms of trade effect there. Prescription, drug pricing, Medicare negotiations negotiated prices that's a slight negative of course for the healthcare industry generally. Mm-hmm. I suppose one of the surprises was there was no adjustment to salt the deductions the $10,000 deduction maximum and maybe not so surprising the carried interest revisions also fell by the wayside in order to get Kirsten cinema on board so that's very interesting one other thing i guess the irs is now going to have another 80 billion dollars over the next 10 years to oversee our tax policy and compliance and larry summers thinks that that alone could raise almost a trillion dollars whereas i think in this package they're assuming it's more like the 200 to 300 billion dollar range over 10 years Well, if nothing else, that might increase compliance from a tax policy point of view. Before we leave fiscal policy, one thing to note importantly, I've mentioned it a few months in a row now, is that federal outlays are falling. They're down 14%. Now, the government sector is almost 20% of GDP. So that's a big hit to a big slice of the economy. Now, it's understandable because it's a, really just the runoff after the stimulus payments last year. But the important thing to note is those who were expecting inflation to stay in the system or who are, much like it did in the 70s, they're losing one argument because back in the 70s, we never saw federal outlays declining. In fact, I think the Vietnam War started in April of 64. The Great Society in May of 64, Great Society was a lot of social safety net programs. So the combination was called guns and butter. The government was funding everything. That started in mid-60s, and continued throughout the 70s. We never saw a reduction in outlays. And so that's a big difference. So fiscal policy is a big drag on the economy right now. Monetary policy. So we've gone from 27% money growth on a year-over-year basis in mid-2020 down to 5.9% in June. It looks like July will be in the low fives. And if you look at the money numbers sequentially, what you will find is they have flattened out for the last few months. Now, if that were to be sustained, that trend or lack of a trend, then we would be working down to 0% money growth over the next six months or so, and possibly negative. Some people do believe the money growth rate will go negative. If it does, I believe that will be the first time since the Great Depression in the 30s. And of course, that would also represent a tremendous drag on economic activity. So we've got both sides of policy, fiscal and monetary policy, really moving in a pro-cyclical manner. What that means is Typically in a recession, they'd be counter-cyclical. You'd be stimulating. They're doing the opposite this time around. And I think that's why a lot of people are going to be surprised at this idea that we actually are in a recession. Now, the Fed is basing policy on two lagging indicators. They're looking at headline inflation. It's actually core inflation, but they're looking at inflation indices Broad based inflation indices like the personal consumption deflator or the CPI or the PPI. And those headline numbers look awful right now and have been pretty sticky in the last few months. And so I think the CPI is up to 9.1% on a year over year basis. And I think the PPI is up 11.3%. So those are very high numbers. And as you know, we don't think they're going to be sustained. And in fact, we think that this monetary policy and fiscal policy restraint in the midst of a recession is going to cause a much faster decline in pricing than we believe the market is anticipating right now. I'll go into that when we talk about market indicators Now, the other lagging indicator that the Fed is focused on is employment. And one of their arguments that the economy can withstand 75 basis points, which they just put in place another 75 basis point increase up to 250 on the Fed funds rate, they're focused on employment. Employment is robust and Surely, because employment's robust, we cannot be in a very severe recession. One of the things I've noticed around turning points in cycles is employment gains are often revised away when the revisions take place. So we'll get a couple of revisions in the next few months, but there are five-year and 10-year revisions that take place and poof, the jobs that were there are no longer there. So we'll see if that's the case this time. I believe it probably is. And as you know, we've been saying we're in a recession for quite some time now. Now the statistics are bearing it out, not employment statistics yet. And we'll get into that in a moment. But the GDP statistics. So real GDP growth has been negative for two consecutive quarters. Now, that's what I've always viewed as a technical recession. Usually there's not much pushback to that, but there has been this time around. But one of the confirmations that we're in a recession are the leading indicators. So there's a leading indicator index that the government puts out every month. And whenever it has shown three consecutive months of decline, as it has, we have been in a recession. So we got that confirmation as well. Now, one of the puzzles is employment. The employment number came out today at non-farm payroll, an increase of 528,000 expectation was 250,000. Big surprise on the high side of expectations. Wages were higher than expected. Hours were revised up in, in previous quarters, hours work or the average work week. And we'll see how much this is subject to revision. We won't be able to tell for a while, but employment is a lagging indicator. These headline inflation measures are lagging indicators in trying to understand if that number was real, what is it? And when you take apart the index, what you find is that there were more women, a, a disproportionate number of jobs created were for women. And we're beginning to wonder if perhaps these employment numbers are picking up a person who has taken on two jobs. And there are various measures of employment. This one, it's possible that is happening. Whereas the household employment measure, which is a much broader survey, it's not of corporations, it's of people in their homes. That measure of employment, it moved up, I think it was up 179,000 this month, but much weaker than non-farm payroll. And if you look at the last four months, it has dropped by 200,000. So it's quite weak over the last four months. And it could be because household, the survey basically says, are you employed? I don't think it asks, are you employed at two jobs? So that may be one of the explanations here. The reason we don't believe that employment is that strong is almost every other employment indicator that we have been monitoring is telling us that employment is weakening rapidly. If you look at initial unemployment insurance claims, they bottomed at, I believe, around 170,000, if I'm not mistaken, And we're up about 55% since then, 55%. That is the fastest increase in that measure of unemployment that we have seen in a recovery. I mean, in a recession, in a recessionary period since 1969, which is as far back as we went in terms of analyzing this. So That is saying something's changing pretty radically here. I mentioned household employment. The Challenger survey of job cuts, those are up 59% on a year-over-year basis. And I think they measure reductions in force announcements. And we've noticed many of our companies are laying people off. And then we got this week, the ISM and the PMI indices, Purchasing Managers Index, and the employment indicators in both of those, those are more manufacturing oriented. The employment indicators both contracted, as did the order indicators. So all of these are corroborating this notion that these strong employment numbers will be revised down. We saw average hourly earnings, which had been averaging in the 0.3% range month to month. They popped 0.5%. The peak on a year-over-year basis was 5.6% in March, and it is coming down. We thought we'd be in the high 4% range. The revisions moved that back to 5.2%. But real average hourly earnings, if you look at those on a year-over-year basis, are down 3.6%. So purchasing power associated with these earnings has gone down fairly dramatically. And we also know that the consumer's very unhappy about this. So I've mentioned the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey regularly on this webcast. The July final numbers were all time lows. I mean, lower than 08, 09, lower than the early 80s when we saw back to back recessions and inflation and interest rates in the 15% range. So the consumer is more miserable now, and it has everything to do with the loss of purchasing power associated with inflation, food, energy, war in the Ukraine, exacerbating that this year, supply chain issues, exacerbating them this year. So the final revision showed that, so it's split into two, current conditions and expected conditions. How are you feeling about them? Current conditions was revised up a bit, still a record low, but revised up a bit, probably because gasoline prices have started to come down. And the reason gasoline prices have started to come down and oil prices as well is because there's demand destruction. There may be supply constraints out there, especially with the Russia-Ukraine situation, but the demand destruction is quite serious. In fact, in July, and I think this was just for part of the month around the July 4th holiday, gasoline demand was down 8% on a year over year basis. Think about that. We weren't even fully back to traveling, vacation season last year, and it's down 8% since last year. And in fact, I believe I saw that it is below where it was at this time in 2020 during the worst part of the coronavirus. So there's real demand destruction taking place right now. As the consumer either can't pay for the gas, just the budget won't allow for these sorts of price increases, or they won't allow for it. The other thing that's very important when it comes to consumer sentiment, of course, is housing. Now, all asset prices are important, but housing is the largest asset. Well, prices aren't coming down yet. I mean, you were hearing some sporadic cases of that throughout the country. On a year-over-year basis, they're still up in the high teens, percentage increases. However, every housing indicator that we're monitoring is beginning to give way, is caving in. New home sales down 8% in the month of June existing home sales down 5.4% in the month of June. Now, those are not year-over-year increases. That's month-to-month. And in economics, we often annualize declines to get a sense of, oh my gosh, if this lasted, how much destruction would there be over a year's period? Well, existing home sales down 5.4%, annualize that, you're down by more than 60%. That just gives you a sense of how housing's giving way. Autos had a slight rebound in July. They went from 13 million to 13.35 million. So that's from June to July. Now, normal for autos is 17 and a half million. This is just a US number. So that is quite low. Actually, that number is consistent with a recession. Now, we don't know. It's hard to tell how much supply chain issues are a problem. But if you look year to date, something very interesting is going on in autos. Huge consumer preference shift towards electric vehicles. Of course, gasoline prices would be one reason. So we saw gas-powered sales year to date down 18% and electric vehicle sales up 71%. So talk about disruptive innovation. It is happening in the auto sector. And I think it's causing quite a bit of consternation at the auto manufacturers. We've just done an analysis on Ford and GM versus Tesla's capital spending, the consensus estimates over the next few years. And Tesla's capital spending is going to surpass their. Capital spending within a year. That's consensus expectations. We believe that Tesla's capital spending will surpass theirs in less than a year because we believe it's going to announce another plant soon. The other reason I think we're in a recession, and we've talked about this, we won't go into it too much, but the inventory buildup that Walmart and Target and Home Depot, Costco, all of them were describing in their April quarters. They do not seem to have gotten them under control if the macro indicators are any indication. We've got on both the wholesale and the retail level, month to month increases in the one and a half to 2% range. Now, if GDP is revised up and it could even be revised into positive territory because of inventories. That won't take us off of this recession, this thought that we're in a recession, because inventories are piling up because consumers are shutting down. And they'll have to clear the inventories with discounts. We're hearing about some draconian discounts out there. I guess at Target, there are 70% 70% discount sales all over the place. That will get in to the CPI ultimately as well. What we've also seen is many companies have tried to salvage profitability as unit demand has turned down with higher prices. And I think, again, the consumer's railing against this, the companies are going to be forced to discount. One of the other things that we are monitoring is productivity now if we're right for the second quarter productivity will be down roughly 2.5% on a year over year basis in the second quarter now we have never seen it that bad on a year over year basis and that is a real problem for profitability if companies can't get their pricing through and we think they've tried we think they're capitulating now, and that their margins are going to take a hit. Now, why has this happened? One of the reasons employment has remained strong, we believe, or stronger for longer, is because of what we call labor hoarding. Companies could not find skilled labor or even unskilled labor that they could train. And this was obviously COVID related, And so now that they can hire people, they are. But if demand is falling apart, then they're doing it at the wrong time and their profits are going to get hit pretty hard. Okay, on to market indicators right now. Well, July was a great month for innovation generally. I would say since mid-May has been a very good month. But in July specifically, the two best performing sectors, consumer discretionary up 15%, technology up about 13.5%. Many of the stocks that cause that are associated with true innovation, disruptive innovation. On the lower end of the return scale, you had comm services up 1%. So that's Facebook and a lot of the social media platforms, which are being Pummeled by cuts in advertising. And that's another confirmation that we're in a recession. Advertising is highly discretionary and companies can pull the plug on it quickly, and they have. So, communication services and then healthcare is the other one that had only a 1.5%. I think the fears associated with the fiscal plan that just passed were part of the reason for that. In the fixed income markets, of course, The Fed increased and everyone anticipated that the Fed would increase interest rates by 75 basis points on July 27th. That happened. But interestingly, the long-term interest rates did not cooperate or have not been cooperating with this idea that they should be going up in lockstep with what the Fed is doing. Instead, what we're seeing is long-term interest rates peaked On June 14th at 3.5%, so this is the 10-year Treasury bond yield, June 14th at 3.5%, and even after a bit of a backup today in response to the employment report, interest rates are down almost 70 basis points to 2.83%. Meanwhile, short-term interest rates, two-year Treasury yields, they have moved up in lockstep they're at 3.24. So now we have an inverted yield curve to the tune of 41 basis points. It's just getting more and more inverted. And that's basically the fixed income markets telling the Fed, okay, something's going to give here. It's going to be the economy, which is caving in in many ways, or inflation, or both. And we think, The answer is both. And we also think, and I'll get into this in a moment, that the surprises are going to be quite significant on the downside when it comes to inflation. On the high yield spreads and credit default swaps, both of those have been settling down as well. So those were moving up fairly rapidly as I had featured in prior months, but they're settling down. The credit default swap average peaked on June 30th at 104, and is now down to 81. And let's see the high yield spreads. And what that means is the spread over treasury yields that these high yield bonds are. So they were 6% higher than the 10-year treasury yield on July 5th, and now they're 4.9%. So that's saying with the rally in July... And the rally happened, I believe, because there are more people believing we're in a recession and that inflation will come down. So that rally has taken some of the worry out of these other markets. Now, in terms of commodities, the commodity market, lots of evidence there. Just take copper. Now, that's a metric that's really a gauge of how strong the economy is. And so that was fluctuating in the four to five dollars per pound range for about a year. And the copper price peaked finally at roughly five dollars in March. They're now down to 354. So that's down 25%. And if you're looking at month to month and year over year, they're both down about 25%. That is going to get into the inflation indicators. Other metrics. I've mentioned gold before, I'll just keep mentioning it. It was in a two-year trading range. It peaked in August of 2020. Most people don't know that. This is a very good inflation indicator, and it's peaked at roughly 2100. It's down to 1790 towards the lower end of that two-year trading range. So copper broke hard below the trading range. Gold has not done that yet, but it is at the lower end of the trading range. Lumber has dropped to, and I won't give you the exact metrics here, but from $1,711 to $474. So huge decline there, confirming what's going on in housing and other indicators. We did get the construction report this last week, and it was down 1.1% in June. That's a very rapid decline for that sector. Iron ore peaked in May of 21 at 219. It's at $100. DRAM prices actually peaked a very long time ago. I didn't know this. December 17, 2017, at 9.6, and now they're down to 2.97. The lithium index, interestingly, was as low as this is an index 115. In May of 21, it shot up to 1,061 by May 6th of 22, and it has flattened out. I always look for change in momentum because it usually means enough capital spending is taking place so that supply is increasing. So it has been flat since May 6th. So we'll see what happens there. And then on to crypto. And we do believe this is a new asset class, so I'd like to feature it. I'd like to highlight our, we call it the Bitcoin Monthly Report. I think we're going to evolve it to the Crypto Monthly, but for right now, we're calling it the Bitcoin Monthly. We also have some information in there about Ether. But in that report, you'll find one of the very positive signs that we've surfaced is that the 200-week moving average of Bitcoin. Remember, Bitcoin peaked close to 70,000 last November, and it got down to somewhere in the $17,000 range very recently. And that broke the 200-week moving average. So that was a very negative sign. So the technicians out there were saying, well, if it cannot reclaim and get back up there pretty quickly, then we're probably going to ten to 13,000. It has reclaimed the 200-week moving average, which is a little bit above, I think, twenty one or 22,000. That's reassuring. We've seen some stabilization there. And the decline this time around, believe it or not, it was pretty intense, but was not as steep as it has been in the past. Normally, it's more than 80% decline. So this was close, but we didn't quite get there. And then the other reassuring piece of news recently that came out was an agreement yesterday announced between BlackRock and Coinbase to partner so that BlackRock could, through its Aladdin technology solutions ecosystem, on which $40 trillion worth of assets sit, they wanted. A seamless on-ramp into crypto that Coinbase is going to provide. So this is another legitimization of Bitcoin and crypto generally as a new asset class. Some of this may have been caused by demand pull, institutions saying, hey, we want to get involved, but the plumbing was just too difficult. So that's good. We did a study on institutions moving into crypto you can see it in our big ideas 2022 you can see the picture and if we're right that 40 trillion just from blackrock's platform hosting other institutions that would translate if you just took our study which basically said if you want to access crypto but you're more focused on minimizing volatility than increasing your sharp ratio then you would put two and a half percent into crypto. And if you're more interested in the sharp ratio, so returns per measure of risk, than you are about volatility, you'd put six and a half percent. So, assuming that two and a half percent on this $40 trillion platform, that's $1 trillion of demand. And that would more than double. Bitcoin price right there, if we just assumed it was all done in Bitcoin, which this agreement is only focused on Bitcoin. Now, what that misses, however, is what we call illiquid supply. There are hodlers out there, holders for dear life, or I've forgotten what that's all about, hold on for dear life. And so the illiquid supply, according to our estimates, Is about 14 million out of the roughly, I think we're into near 19 million, 18 to 19 million Bitcoin outstanding. So illiquid, 14 million. And by our calculations, only 3 million units are truly liquid. So the demand, if we were to see a $1 trillion increase in demand, then it would probably drive the price up much higher than the doubling that I just mentioned. So you can see that work also on our website, arc-invest.com. Yasin Elmandra wrote a report really focused on what institutional demand might do for the Bitcoin price, and I'm really glad we have it. You can take a look at it and see our logic there. So with that, I think that innovation is leading the way, as it usually does as we're exiting a bear market. And we don't know if we're through with this bear market or not. We could be in a trading range. Who knows? But I'm very gratified to see the leadership has shifted back towards growth and especially towards innovation. We are always the new leadership, almost by definition we're focused on the future. What is the world going to look like instead of on the past, which is what most passive strategies and even benchmark sensitive strategies do. So hopefully this is a good sign that I know it'll be volatile, but that we are on our way again. And I will look forward to delivering this webinar again on Employment Friday, where we will have more answers. So thanks very much.